as I often say, these days there isn't a professor of history that doesn't believe that Jesus was a real figure in time, that he lived and that he was crucified. And the evidence for Jesus rising from the dead would be enough to satisfy any jury. But evidence isn't quite enough. We need to experience the results of the resurrection event. It would be easy to simply go through the motions of remembering that first Easter without letting it impact on how we live and think and act. When Jesus appears to the disciples hidden away in the upper room, somewhere in Jerusalem, behind locked doors, he knows that his resurrection still needs to be experienced in their lives. So he says five things to them, five things that will enable and empower and inspire them to begin their new life in the power of the resurrection. He stands among them and says in verse 19, peace be with you. This might have been a standard greeting, but in this context, there is more to it than that. In this context, Jesus has just finished his great task, which was to bring peace on earth. Jesus' death on the cross was the end of the breakdown in relationship with people and God. The importance of this event is shown by the fact that he repeats the greeting, peace be with you, in verse 21. Peace in this context is a huge concept. It's not just the absence of conflict and war. It is much more positive than that. In the Jewish mind, peace, or shalom, meant completeness, well-being, harmony. It incorporated, for example, the idea of living in a harmonious community with others. Most of all, though, The peace he speaks of is peace with God as a result of his savings work on the cross. But still, that isn't enough. Not only do we need to experience his peace for ourselves, but we to make peace with God complete. To fulfill the shalom, in our experience, we need to tell others about it. We need to build community of faith. So Jesus says in verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. There is a recurring theme in John's gospel. Jesus has been sent from the Father so he can choose others who will be sent by him. He tells them what he has experienced at the Father's side so his disciples can pass that message on. And now he sends out his own disciples to do the same thing that the Father had sent him to do. So what is that? What is that John's Gospel portrays as the central work of Christ? What does Jesus do? Well, he comes into the world in perfect obedience to the Father's will. He comes as one of us in order to save us. 
and in order to show us what the Father is like. He's set apart by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and lives a totally obedient life to God's will. So too, Christians who have been taken out of the world are now called to go back into the world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, which we'll see in a moment, to live lives obedient so others will see what God expects of people. In other words, we're to continue Jesus' work in the world. But if we need, if we're going to do that, we need God's power. So in verse 22, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus breathed on them as though breathing his own spirit into them. The word for spirit, wind and breath are all the same in Greek and Hebrew. So this breathing is a symbolic act pointing to the moment when the spirit would be poured out on them. But let me suggest something else as well. In Genesis 2, account of the creation of Adam, God made man from dust, from the ground, breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Given the way John's Gospel, uh, with a clear reference to Genesis 1, there is every chance that he's wanting us to think about Genesis 2. This is Jesus completing the work of bringing new birth to his disciples. We know, of course, that the Spirit wasn't poured out until Pentecost. John knew when he included this incident in his Gospel that his readers would know that historic event. But he puts it in here because giving of the Spirit is central to Jesus' commission to go as his ambassadors, as his envoys, to continue the work that the Father had sent him to do. They need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to truly represent him and in order to remain obedient, in order to understand what the Father desires, in order to proclaim with boldness a gospel that is foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block for Jews. They need the Spirit's power if they are to preach a gospel that saves. This is the next thing he says to them in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is one of those passages, I tell you, this is one of those passages that causes great concern through the ages. It raises the question, is Jesus giving the apostles the right to adjudicate over people's right to forgiveness? There have been times in church history when that is exactly how it has been interpreted and when this power has been, uh, 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 has been terribly abused. But in context, that is not what he is saying at all. What he is saying is that our, Christian, our task as Christians is to continue the saving work of Jesus in the world. In other words, our task is to bring the gospel of forgiveness to those who need to hear it. We are to proclaim it, live it out in our lives, model it so that people hear its message clearly. 
the forgiving then comes about by God's work in a person's heart. As the gospel is proclaimed, one or two things happen. Either we accept the gospel and repent, or we don't accept the gospel and choose not to turn away from our lifestyle and and take God's offer of forgiveness, and we are left exactly where we started. But finally, Jesus adds to his commission to go out in his name by giving them a promise in verse 29. In fact, he gives a promise to Thomas. Thomas missed the first appearance, as we heard, of Jesus, but he was the sort who needed to see with his own eyes. He was the one who had encouraged them to go to Jerusalem with Jesus, even if it meant that they were likely to be killed along with him. But now he's a bit disillusioned, isn't he? He'd obviously hoped for better and his hopes had been dashed. So he isn't going to get his hopes up again unless he can see Jesus face to face and actually touch him. Put his hands in the hole in his side and in the nail holes in his hands. So Jesus comes again to satisfy Thomas's scepticism. But it's more than that, isn't it? The other disciples may have been beginning to wonder whether they'd imagined it as well. And they still need to be encouraged to get out and do what Jesus had commanded them. So Jesus comes and speaks to Thomas. But you can't help but think he's speaking to them all. Do not doubt, but believe, he says. It is normal, perfectly normal for the human experience to have doubt, isn't it? We worry about all sorts of things. Some things trivial, some more important. I think it's really important to notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas so much as to encourage him at this moment. He holds out his hands and says, put your finger in here. Reach out and put your hand in my side. Only then does he encourage him to believe rather than doubt. And when Thomas responds with that amazing statement of faith, my Lord and my God, he gives him and the other disciples this great promise. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. There are many who will believe even though they hadn't been given the opportunity firsthand, like Thomas, who will come to believe through the testimony of Thomas and the other disciples, through the preaching of the gospel, by the reading of the things written here, and coming to believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God. So this blessing on those who believe is also a promise to them and to us that belief will come if the gospel is proclaimed if the gospel is lived out, experienced in your lives. Sin can and will be forgiven as people hear the gospel and see the way you live a Christian life. Jesus' risen life is meant to be lived out. 
as we share with others the great news of his death and resurrection, of peace and forgiveness available to everyone. That is the challenge to us, to live out the five things, the five things Jesus gave to his disciples, to live them out in our own lives. Amen.